Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Nick Gibson. Nick Gibson. Wow. Hey. Hi. I think what we should do right now is that you should just tell people who you are again, because I think that we're getting new listeners. Okay. And yeah. Nick Gibson. Um, I am 44. I have a wife and four children, and um, my wife. Uh, my wife is great. Um, I pastor a church in Madison, Wisconsin. It's a relatively large church called High Point Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took over 10 years ago when it was in pieces, kind of, um, and it's not quite tripled in size since mm-hmm. then. Um, and I'm really interested in theology, and I try to. One of our ethos is at High Point is we try to go like be a church that that grows because we're going deeper rather mm-hmm. than just like making things more popular. So I like to talk about why we believe what we believe. What does scripture really teach? What does the Christian tradition really say? Mm-hmm. So that's why I like podcasting and stuff like that. Cause I think there's not a lot of that in churches. Yeah. You know, and they're not good at this type of stuff. Church yeah. But I want people to love the local church and to love yeah. the body of Christ, even if their pastor doesn't go as deep as they want. And mm-hmm. I think especially for thinking and intelligent Christians, mm-hmm. you got to recognize that like, Besides you and pews are plumbers and people who don't spend their time reading books and so on. And they're intelligent people, but they right. don't, they don't, have time to do they don't think a lot. Yeah. Um, and th- that's because of their lifestyle or their temperament. And we shouldn't despise those people. We sit with them in yeah. a pew. We love them. Mm-hmm. We don't think they're ridiculous, but we have to have a space yeah. like this where we talk about things more deeply because these issues come up and they matter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. I'll just introduce myself as well. I'm Andy Schmidt. I literally just do podcasting for a job now probably because of this podcast this is like my resume in the beginning and so um yeah you're welcome yeah thank you so much (laughs) um and i yeah i've been to high point i started going here when i was a kid i was dedicated here moved and then came back here and now this is kind of where i go to church but i live in minneapolis as well so i try to be a part of this church but this podcast isn't specifically a high point podcast i gotta make that clear isn't you said it's It's not not, it's not no it's uh it's an optive podcast. Yes. Which which yeah, is a great stuff. So today we're gonna to be talking about what is essential for Christian salvation or what is essential in the Bible, that kind of question. I think this is one I've gotten emails about and one that I think is just generally an interesting topic and I think a lot of young people and Christians all all over the, the board are trying to figure out what is the essential doctrines for me to believe to know that I'm saved. And it's, it's an interesting question, and I think that we'll just jump into it. There's this quote that we've heard on this podcast before, and it's, in, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And I feel like this, this quote kind of gets thrown around in the church mm-hmm. just because it seems to, like, I think, I think it gets thrown around with Christians because it's really ambiguous, and you kind of just get to pick what's essential and non essential. It's not so specific. It's not like this thing you have to believe, this, this thing you don't believe, and let's have unity over this thing. Yeah. Um, and so that's probably why people love it, because it's like I just get to decide what I want to what I want to believe here. And so mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, it's been a. I mean, we've done this podcast. This is like our fortieth episode, mm-hmm. and. It's like when you talk about things and when pastors talk about things, it's like very matter of factly, like this is what it is and Mm -hmm. this is what I believe. And I think for, and probably when I talk about things, that's how I talk about it as well. And there's probably different. You do tend to talk about things that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think it can just rub people the wrong way of like, oh, so you figured out the essential doctrines. And my argument would be like, I probably, I probably haven't, but I believe that I do. So I don't know. But, um, but here's what I'll say. Here's, here's where I'll start is that, um, with the question of how should Christians go about figuring out what is essential in their salvation? And you can take it away. Yeah. Um, so that, that quote, 
um, is often attributed to St. Augustine, who in the Catholic tradition is one of the great doctors of the church. And so it has like a lot of natural authority behind it. Um, it's found nowhere in Augustine's writings, though Augustine wrote a few thousand pages at least. Mm. Um, but it, it's actually found in the post-Reformation period, especially when like we're starting to get wars of religion in Europe. So there, there are like a growing group of especially pietists who are kind of like, hey, can we be a little less dogmatic, mm. right? And it probably came from a pretty good place because in during the Thirty Years' Wars, in the wars of religion in Europe, which secularists throw in our face all the time, and in some ways, r- rightly, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Even though Europeans were killing each other way before there was any, there were any Christian fights, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. But part of it was that the, the Christian faith was believed in a doctrinaire way within the subsets of Protestantism mm-hmm. and Catholicism, and so and people thought, well, we we're gonna have to kill each other over this, like we mm-hmm. have to have fight a war. Mm-hmm. And th- these pietists were saying, I don't think we do. I don't think we have to fight a war. Mm-hmm. I think that we can, I think that we can figure out what part of our faith is essential. And I think that the Calvinists over here and the Zwinglians over here and the Roman Catholics over here, I think that we could not kill each other. Mm-hmm. I think we could give liberty in a bunch of these areas. And so for like one of those would have been like, what does it mean that c- in communion we partake in the body and blood of Christ? Yeah. Is it transubstantiational, like mm-hmm. in the Roman Catholic? Is it consubstantiational, like in Lutheranism? Is it like a memorial or a spiritual presence, like in Zwinglianism? Right. Mm-hmm. And so, like that, those differences, um, instead of them being the fundamental marks by which we distinguish each other into enemies and not and, and friends, mm-hmm. they are things where we go, okay, you disagree. That disagreement might be consequential, but it's not such that I'm either going to like attack you as a human being in a socio-political sense or even say you're not a Christian, mm-hmm. right? Even though I might say, if you believe that, that is not good for your faith and might ultimately lead us to bad. So one of the things I say is even if something is um, acceptable, like it's not heresy, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that the, the false belief isn't consequential. Mm-hmm. And my desire as a believer is not just to only believe the essentials. My, my goal as a Christian, according to the Bible, is to have the mind of Christ, yeah. to believe everything Christ has revealed as he's revealed it such that um, my mind is formed like his because mm-hmm. every place where my my thought about what's true deviates from his, I'm wrong. And that is a, that's sand in my fishing reel. That's like, you know, it's like, it's a, the truth is a lubricant to life. Like it makes it flow. It makes it work. It makes yeah. all the pieces work together. Mm-hmm. And when you believe something falsely, especially if you do it knowingly mm-hmm. because you just want to, then you're going to find yourself in a situation where there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Somebody getting a phone call. Sorry, no, it's a, that's an alarm. No. <laughs> so, d- does that make sense? So, yeah. so I, th- so what, what happened in in that period? And this is in the this middle 1600s. Was these Christian theologians trying to say, is there some way that we cannot kill each other, mm-hmm. but still hold to the truth mm-hmm. and actually have a brotherhood and sisterhood within the Christian faith? And mm-hmm. I think that that was actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think you and I would be much more charitable towards this statement if there were wars of religion happening. But sure, like anything, yeah. a pendulum can swing too far the other way mm-hmm. to where what you, what was a like really important impulse towards Christian unity can become a like just a saying that we throw around when we don't want to be troubled by yeah. difficult things. Right. Well, and I think like I mean, I remember when we were doing the hell podcast and Tom was telling me about this, you know, conditional immortality in your mm-hmm. traditional or orthodox, you say it's orthodox and um I, I can't remember. I asked you some sort of question or I brought this quote to you and I was like, mm-hmm. well, Tom told me this and you were like, okay, well, like give me a list of all the essentials in the Bible and I'll only preach about those. And I was like, I can't do that. Cause I don't know where those are. And that was kind of the whole point yeah. is that 
that's not a yeah. It's it's important to recognize that this this, this distinction between essentials and non-essentials, or some people actually will say um, primary, secondary, and tertiary level, right? That's all made up, right? None yeah. of that's actually in the Bible. Now, yeah. the Bible does recognize that there is a distinction between between essentials and non-essentials in, in this. In the book of Romans, in chapter fourteen, the apostle Paul refers to quote disputable matters. Mm-hmm. So there there are some things in Christian faith as people are relating to each other, even within the life of the church that are disputable, Paul mm-hmm. says. Now, if it's disputable, what he's saying is it's possible in good faith to think differently about this thing, mm-hmm. right? And in that case, he basically says, you should be fully convinced in your own mind and you shouldn't kill each other. Mm-hmm. You should let each other be. Mm-hmm. And you can argue about it, but um, you shouldn't um, harm the other person and you shouldn't treat each other in such a way as the thing that you believe is good is slandered by outsiders because they look at the way you treat each other. Mm-hmm. Which is what happened in the wars of religion. I mean, the wars of religion um, are what really motivated the Enlightenment's hatred towards Christian faith, mm-hmm. which is the main mechanism the Western world used to reject Christianity. Hmm. So Romans 14 literally happened in the late 1500s, 1600s, so that in the 1700s and following, um, Christian Christian faith was profoundly undermined, especially it was undermined doctrinally. What, like when you, you just, look at the founding fathers, let me just finish yeah, this really quick. Um, the founding fathers like... like um, uh, George Washington and most ever, most all of them, none of them were what we'd call evangelical believing in the Bible. Well, that's not true. The famous ones, most of the most famous ones yeah. aren't evangelical. Like we would say, like mm-hmm. believing in the biblical doctrines, mm-hmm. they were religious. They believed in God. They believed in salvation. They mm-hmm. believed in God's final judgment. They be, like, they believed in a lot mm-hmm. more Christian doctrine than your average person wants to ascribe to a, to a 18th century deist. Mm-hmm. Okay. So George Washington believed in like God's judgment and all that kind of stuff. But he was he was irrationally anti-doctrinal. Hmm. And so was Thomas Jefferson, and so were a number of these people. And, and a lot of people are like, well, it's because they were so enlightened. No, it's because 80 years previous, people in their home countries were killing each other over doctrinal understandings of hmm. Christian faith that were, that were, quote, non-essential, right? That they had blown out of proportion in such a way that they were hmm. killing each other. And what that produced was a reaction, yeah. which is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans 14. Hmm. Don't allow the thing you believe is good, hmm. that is the gospel in this yeah. case, be spoken of as though it's evil. Mm-hmm. That is, don't don't fight against heresy and people who aren't believing certain things, especially if they're disputable matters, mm-hmm. in such a way as to destroy the testimony of the gospel. That's mm-hmm. true. And so when people use this quote to say that, they're saying something very biblical. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would argue something that is arguably essential. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads to the next question. Is Well, for, I want to ask first, can you define what, what the Enlightenment is? Like, what what is people who, like, in that time period, the Enlightenment... Like that's yeah, that I mean, around. obviously it means the breaking in of light. And, and um, <laughs> years ago, people used to teach right. that up until the Enlightenment was what they called the Dark Ages, mm-hmm. um, which was medieval. They thought of as medieval Christianity. It turned out that, historically speaking, that was terrible history mm-hmm. because in, tons of light broke in through Christians in with the Middle Ages so as to make the Enlightenment possible in mm-hmm. the modern world, world possible. Like the, But a lot of the stuff, like the scientific advancements, were practical rather yeah. than theoretical. Right. So so people don't really give them much credit. But like mm-hmm. people, um, Europeans were inventing things like the plow and yeah. the horse halter. And, the printing press. Yeah, and, and things that created like food surpluses. Like you mm-hmm. can't have an academic yeah. community yeah. in any human society until you have food surplus. Yeah. Right. And so when certain plows and agricultural advancements were created, Europe went immediately, like overnight, into food, into food surplus, mm-hmm. which expanded its population and allowed for intellectual work that wasn't even possible before. Yeah. And so that those things that happened during quote the Dark Ages, that is Christendom, yeah, made possible mm-hmm. the Enlightenment, right? Yeah. So, 
Um, so the idea is, is that the enlightenment, but, but the way um, Immanuel Kant defines it is when mankind came out of the supervision of superstition. So like up until, quote, the enlightenment, humankind was told what to do by our accumulated wisdom, mm -hmm. which was built into what he considered superstitions or religions. Mm -hmm. Now, Kant believed in God and believed that some religious truths were true, like mm -hmm. modern deists, right? Or, or I would say 18th century deists. Mm -hmm. But he said, when you as a person no longer submit to something like Christianity or some kind of philosophy, mm -hmm. and you think everything, you make all your decisions yourself, that you are the arbiter of mm -hmm. the objective truth that's out there. Mm -hmm. He would believe in objective truth. People don't know. Yeah. But he would say there's mm -hmm. some truth out there. That, yeah. And you take responsibility yourself. Mm -hmm. You're no longer under the supervision of something else. You're a intellectual adult now mm -hmm. as an enlightened person, mm -hmm. and you're going to make the call. That kind of came from Aristotle, right? And, and, it, and it made its way through because then almost the founding fathers well, bought in. That was their Immanuel Kant was, was that... Before yeah, the I mean, fathers. Francis Bacon was much more of an influence, I think, on the mm. on the uh, on the American fathers than Kant. But yeah, they knew of Kant. They knew, and and the I would say this: the ethos of Kant, his spirit, was all over the founding fathers, okay. especially people like Jefferson. Yeah, and in some I ways, was, Washington. Though Washington wasn't as intellectually accomplished as Jefferson. Yeah, great. Okay, well, okay. So I then I want to move into this: is that what then do you consider to be essential? Like, cause I think I, you get, you ask different pastors, you ask different people, you read different books and you kind of get a bunch of different answers. Yeah. Some people are just like willy nilly with this. Like, mm -hmm. well, you just have to believe the gospel. And then you're like, well, what is the gospel? And so we'll get into that. Right. But what do you think? So, is? okay. So I would just find essential in two ways. The first way is formal, which is if you don't believe this, you are not a Christian. That's essential. Yeah. It, it, it's binary. If you don't believe this, mm -hmm. you are not a Christian. The second way I would describe essential is, is practically, if you don't believe this, you're not going to make it. So in the Christian Bible, um, perseverance is necessary. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to make it yeah. to the end to be saved, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, if that's true, then whatever you have to believe of the truth that is a tool or a mechanism uh, in the soul that helps you get to the end, mm -hmm. anything you need to get to the end mm -hmm. is necessary. So if I go, like I went elk hunting a couple weeks ago, mm -hmm. like anything I had to put in my backpack either in case I needed it or because I knew I would need it mm -hmm. was essential. Right. Yeah. And I made a lot of decisions because I had to carry the, that weight for a lot of miles. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, do I really need this? And do I really need that? Mm -hmm. Right. So like my lighters and my matches, like mm -hmm. those are essentials. Right. Does that make sense? And it's not because like every human being must have matches. It, mm -hmm. No, it's like I might have needed that to get to the end to mm -hmm. persevere. Right. So by those two definitions, mm -hmm. the first definition would be things like that, which is essential to the gospel. Yeah. Right. Like God's existence, God's nature, Right. The reality of sin. Would that be argued, though, from somebody else like that, that which is essential to the gospel, like God's nature, God's existence? It's like there's arguments about God's nature. Like there's a bunch mm -hmm. of those arguments or it's, or it's even this is why I get confused. And I'm, I don't want to take this all over the place, but mm -hmm. it, I get confused because part of God's nature is like the argument between complementarianism and egalitarianism or mm -hmm. how. It feels like after Genesis three and whichever route you take there kind of defines what you believe about the rest of the Bible. Yeah. Um, and, Oh, you mean in terms of like gender roles because of how you see how the curse functions within human yes. couples. Yeah. yeah. And, and not just mm -hmm. within human couples, it's like within order and higher, I guess. Yes. Within yeah. It'll couples. affect the way you see hierarchy for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I, I guess, okay. So let me take one step back in one sense. If we ask the question, well, what's really essential, right? Formally speaking, that's an incredibly juvenile question, right? Like, what does Jesus say at the end of Matthew? He says, go into the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them what? Not to believe the essentials, right? He says, teaching them to obey 
everything I commanded you. Mm-hmm. So Jesus view of like what we should be after, what we should be seeking as Christians and what we should be accepting is not the minimum, mm-hmm. but the maximum. Yeah. Right. And so as an individual, you shouldn't be saying, well, what are the essentials I need to believe in? No, 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 no. That's not how it works. You're Christ's disciple. You accept everything. Like you, ha- you're, yeah. you're pursuing the mind of Christ. You're keeping in step with the spirit. You're mm-hmm. believing the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it's not a question of like, what can I leave out mm-hmm. right now? Yeah. When, then when the question is what, how do I deal with this brother who doesn't believe what I believe? Right. Okay. Now that question matters because we're talking about how we treat another person. But the problem, your issue with it is that there's a lot of people who use it as a question relative to themselves. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, you know, it's not an essential. So whatever. Right. Yeah. And you're like, well, no, your job is to believe everything Jesus commanded. Right. Right. Because what's the, I mean, what's the obviously the biggest one people think is not essential i mean it's sexuality commands. yeah yeah and sexuality commands are one of the hardest thing mm-hmm. to show is not essential in the bible mm-hmm. everywhere in the bible where sexuality is talked about it's talked about as though it's utterly essential what about specifically complementarianism though like like i i've i've and i don't know i don't know if i should say this or not but i'm gonna i i've had a hard time figuring out if it's like if you're egalitarian can you believe the full truths of the of the Bible. Can you be a Christian? And that might be like a, I don't know how if that's something that people say or not. But it it is frustrating to me because it's like you're you're just you're just real, you're kind of just ignoring what the words say, and just because you don't like it, and that seems really yeah. like you can't prove it. You're just ignoring it. Yeah, I mean, that's one way to look at it. So okay, so that that's a good example of those two different definitions of essential. I said so. One is 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 complementarianism or the belief that there are there are meaningful gender differences between men and women that operate within the family semi at least semi hierarchically mm-hmm. relative to how God has made man and woman to relate to each other okay i would say the answer to that is is a definitively no relative to the first definition which is is this part of the gospel that you have to believe to be saved but it's also important to recognize that jesus judges what is faith and i think there's going to be a lot of people who don't believe all the things that I would say are definitely essential who will actually be saved because of God's leniency in good faith ignorance. Mm-hmm. So like, there's gonna, like if I talk to like some illiterate person in rural India and I say, <laughs> believe in the Lord Jesus and you can be saved. Like they, you've done wrong things yeah. and Jesus died for your sins. And he says, I believe that. Yeah. And he believes it. Right. He gets baptized and then he dies. Right. Yeah. God's not going to be like, okay, now, you, what did you think about gender roles? Yeah. Or, or, or even, what did you think about the nature of sin? Yeah. Did you think you were depraved at this level or, or that level? Or did you ever think about the nature of sin? Right. Yeah. Like, the guy's going to be like, no, I, this guy came to yeah. my village <laughs> yeah. and said. So on one level, yeah. like, there is a minimalist approach in which Jesus is entirely free and wild in the way he will judge relative to to, to giving mercy wherever yeah. he can contrive a means by which mm-hmm. to give mercy. The problem is, is that human beings are so wicked is that we're so prone to presumption that we just want to be like, well, then I guess it like it doesn't really matter. Yeah, and right. It's that like it, that's the problem is that because Jesus is going to be lenient with that one guy, mm-hmm. we think that it doesn't matter. Like if, if you openly reject what the Lord teaches, right, that becomes a problem in the second category, which is what do you need to make it to the end? Yeah. If yeah. you if yeah. you go like, OK, well, I'm just going to believe whatever I want about gender roles. I'm going to believe whatever I want about sexuality. And, I'm, and listen, I'm not saying that I agree that if you believe in egalitarianism, it's in bad faith. I think there are people who believe in egalitarianism in in good faith. What they end up doing is they take some biblical passages and they apply them to other ones as sort of like overruling isn't or determining. Isn't that hard? I like my brain breaks because it's like you just you just have to read. Well, okay, so so without getting into yeah. that as the question for this <laughs> podcast, right? Yeah. Um, I I think that you can believe in egalitarianism in good faith relative right. to some other things, right? And so. 
but the, here's the thing in anywhere where God teaches something we, and we could get it right and we actually get it wrong. Mm-hmm. There's a deviation in our mind or there's like, like it's like it's sand or like there's, there's a part that doesn't belong in this machine that's working, which is our faith. Mm-hmm. And so it starts running less smooth and it gets clunkier and it doesn't really fit entirely. And there's problems. Now mm-hmm. the question is what's that going to do, right? At some point that could be an internal problem that, that your mind or the devil uses to create doubts. Like, well, wait, you believe this contradiction or you believe Mm -hmm. this thing and that's wrong, or this doesn't work or that see that thing over there. That's right. Or it can drag you out where the roaring lion will devour you. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. yeah. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And so, um, there are some, so for example, um, there's some folks who have gone the egalitarian route, Mm -hmm. right. For what they believe were very devout reasons. And that lead led them to, from one, sort of like hyper feminist conclusion to the next Mm -hmm. to where they became fully womanist to where then they couldn't call God father to where like some of these other like larger categories about the dynamics Mm -hmm. of God's relationship in in self revelation, they started rejecting more whole cloth. And Mm -hmm. then as they started freely rejecting that, which is in scripture, Mm -hmm. they didn't believe in really in God's revelation. And then, Mm -hmm. so you can see like there's this thing that can happen. Now, listen, the fact that egalitarianism is a more quote liberal doctrine that is more more generously interpreted like more like it, it moves towards a more openish position rather mm-hmm. than more definitive more closed one yeah you can do this in all these conservative ways that's what happened mm-hmm. to the Pharisees obviously mm-hmm. right they were like no this is right not that mm-hmm. and so then this is right not that so then this is right not that so you, mm-hmm. there's a conservative way to do this too that mm-hmm. like binds you in and makes you a legalist and so on. So there, there's no safety in fundamentally just liberally interpreting the Bible or conservatively interpreting the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's why interpreting the Bible as it desires to be interpreted, as mm-hmm. it signals its meaning, is the most important thing. Sometimes it'll make you more conservative. Sometimes it'll make you more liberal. One of the one of the conservative uh, things I thought that I think is funny is like there's a like fundamental. There's like a lot of churches who have like decided that the King James version is the one and true. Yeah. Bible and and it's and I think that's funny because you I I wouldn't you say that the like the actual Greek and Hebrew text is the like one and true if you're gonna make an argument that there is one and true right. true Bible it wouldn't be the King James version right right it's I think that's right. funny but yeah yeah it's funny some of those folks I, some of those folks just say the King James Bible is just the best Bible that's been translated in. I, I, you know, and I'm, I mean, and I don't, yeah. I don't think the King James Bible is a bad translation. Yeah. So I'm glad people are reading the Bible. Yeah. But the argument that it's like better Superior. than the Greek, there are some yeah. people that really believe that. But that gets yeah. into questions of the Textus Receptus versus the Westcott Hort, and like, like how ma- Greek manuscripts are weighted in mm-hmm. readings in the New Testament mm-hmm. as you reconstruct the text of the New Testament to be as accurate as possible based on comparing thousands of manuscripts with each other. Oh, there are yeah. two different methods you yeah. can use. And the King James only people believe that the majority text is the correct one. Mm-hmm. And so none of the Bibles we have today are translated that way. They're translated on a weighting system of the families of manuscripts mm-hmm. rather than just whatever reading has the most his manuscripts. Okay. And so because of that, there is a Greek and there is a Greek, not really Hebrew, but there's a Greek argument for why the King James should be preferred yeah. because it's translated in a way or was translated in a way that no other Bible is translated. Mm-hmm. It just turns out that's wrong. That's all. Yeah. The, like, and I think the, that it's a motivated decision. I don't think that they looked at, I, in most cases, I don't think they were like, well, what is the, you know, what is the Greek, you know, what, like what's the best thing in the, with the Greek. Okay. Yeah. Now I guess the King James is the best. It was the King James is the best, and then they moved back. And then they moved back. But the reason, but this gets back to reactionism, right? Like the reason why they did that was because a lot of these newer translations were 
associated with liberal Christianity mm -hmm. that didn't believe any of these biblical doctrines, yeah, like the virgin yeah, birth and yeah. the deity of Christ and yeah. so on. And so when the revised standard version became the new revised standard version, like this is all happening like this 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, right? Mm -hmm. They were like, these are the, liberal scholars are translating this. They're putting their liberal bias on it. Right. So like in, in Isaiah seven, where the King James Bible says the virgin will be with child, mm -hmm. right? The new revised standard version translated the young woman will be with child. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's probably a worse translation. And it was probably motivated by liberal scholars that didn't believe in the virgin birth. And so they wanted to put, they wanted to say, well, this vir a virgin, a virgin in Hebrew, because everybody assumed you were a virgin hmm. also just means young woman of marriageable age. Yeah. So when Isaiah says that he just means young woman, right? It's not a prophecy that yeah. a virgin is going to have a child because in Isaiah seven, the woman who actually has a child doesn't have a child because she's a virgin. Mm -hmm. the, the woman in Isaiah seven has a child because she's of marriageable age, gets mm -hmm. married, has a child. And then they, Isaiah names that child for what's happening in Israel at that time. Mm -hmm. So we'll translate young woman. So these conservative Christians look at that. And they're like, these people are literally putting liberalism into the Bible. Yeah. We're not using those freaking translations. Mm -hmm. And so then they reacted against it. But that goes to show that like, man, it's easy to overreact. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I, it's hard for me to say that. Because the New American Standard Bible is not some crazy liberal translation. And even the NIV 82, which is what they attack most vehemently because it's the most widely read Bible. In, when those debates were big, like there were some things in it that you could say were like a little bit liberally, but like mm -hmm. all the key passages are all translated in perfectly orthodox ways. You you could like, I think we've had our first podcast we ever released was what is the Trinity slash what is the best translation? That was the one, the first one we ever oh, talked yeah. about. Mm -hmm. And, and it, I think you mentioned that like the, it was a 2011 NIV version that started to like say like brothers and sisters and started to be more like gender inclusive, like yeah. for every all gender inclusive translations got really big in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I've never liked them because I, when I open my Bible, I want the text to say what the original text says. Yeah. Not as closely as possible, but relatively closely. Yeah. I want to know that if I say something out of the English Bible, mm -hmm. it has a reference in the original Bible, the real yeah. Bible. Mm -hmm. And so when people add in reading stuff that makes reading more palatable because of mm -hmm. our understandings. It, it bothers me. I yeah. know why they do it. And I'm not saying it's wrong because when Paul said brothers, he meant the whole church, right. which included sisters. Mm -hmm. And so does he quote mean brothers and sisters when he says brothers? Mm -hmm. Well, in one sense he does. Yeah. It, it's like, I mean, speaking in uh, Spanish, you use like the, the, the masculine term mm -hmm. when it's to, mixed, when it's mixed. Right. 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 And, but yeah, right. you're then, arguing the case for Galatians. No, I, I know. No. I mean, that, I mean, there, it's not like it's dumb. Like it's it's a real yeah. thing. I just don't like. No, I when the text says Andros brothers, yeah. and you right. translate it brothers and sisters. Right. I agree. I with think you. that that's unhelpful. Yeah, I agree with you. I just said that just because I would. But listen, I know women. There were women at my seminary who were so adamant. They're like, "Oh, it has to be done because it was so alienating to us." And I'm like, "Okay, I mean, I guess if it's that alienating, and you want to read the Bible says that, I'm I'm fine with that." Right. But. There's probably other issues there too. Yeah. Um, so we, we talk like the essential doctrine. It's like the gospel, and I think that that I think it begs the question. It's probably the first podcast that we should have ever done. But what exactly is the gospel then? Because what what is right. a, what what is there to believe in? That, I would I mean I would go bigger than the gospel in terms of what I consider essentials myself. Like I I think when the early church came mm -hmm. up with the creeds, that's what they were trying to do. Okay. I mean the the creeds were their attempt to say what the essentials. This are. is what it is, mm -hmm. and so yeah. So, okay, so then specifically for the gospel, because I think t starting here is like when, and this is an argument that me and my dad have been getting into arguments about this, and it's 
what need, what do you need to believe about the gospel? So what are we believing in as Christians? Do I believe in the like historical significance of Jesus that he was born, lived, died and resurrected that like, or am I believing in the words of Jesus Christ and what he said and his commands mixed with what he did and dying and resurrecting like that? There seems to be two different things. And it's like people will be like, oh, I believe in Jesus. Like, I believe he was a person. He, he was here. He did these things. But then when you ask him if you believe what he said, that there, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And it, and it seems like he said, have, go out and make disciples and teach them to follow all of my commands putting a, an emphasis more on what he said rather than on what he did. Yeah. So what's the, what, what do you need to believe? Cause this, this has been frustrating even just with people that I know that I'm close with. It's like you can you just want to make up in Christianity what you can, what you, what you want to believe. It's so much easier to believe in the historical significance of Jesus like that he was just here rather than what he taught because it's like, yeah, I can believe that he died and he mm-hmm. rose again. That's like, yeah, it, I can believe it because I'm 2000 years removed. Mm-hmm. If I was there in the time, I probably would have a harder time believing it. But what, do you, what is there? What do I believe in as a Christian? Well, what am I supposed to believe in? Yeah. So I think one of the things you're getting at is there's a certain trick that sometimes people play and they're pretending they're being honest, but they're not where they say, I believe in X but I'm going to empty out all the content of what X is and put in all my own content and then say, I believe in X. Yeah. It's a different thing then. Yeah. You just, yeah. So like in liberal theology, the way it works is like, we're going to take the word salvation Mm -hmm. and we're going to take out the historic Christian meaning. And we're going to put in like that. um, We have the lion and the baroness from evolution and they're, that's bad. And we'll do like primitive and um, destructive things. And as we evolve in society and as we get better and better as society, Mm -hmm. we overcome the lion and the bear within our hearts. And we, become more civilized and therefore more loving beings. And that development mm-hmm. is salvation. And so I Just believe generally, yeah. Salvation. And, 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 and Jesus yeah. exemplified that more than anyone else that we have record of. And okay. the record of Jesus hmm. points us in that direction to love our, to love our enemies and to like, care love our neighbors as ourselves so and we've be, regressed since then i guess yeah was so, he the epitome like the right well what they would say is like that's that's what we're aiming for the thing that's great about jesus is he shows us how to go through that and so like that's yeah. what salvation really is yeah so you see how like that's right. taken out of a biblical context it's mm-hmm. put in like darwinistic and yeah. modernistic right. and naturalistic metaphors mm-hmm. and so i've re i've redefined a word and then i say i believe in it yeah and um, now, yeah, that's that. I don't. I think that that's terrible when liberal theologians did it in the 20th century, but like your average 22 year old can do the exact same thing by mm-hmm. saying I believe in Jesus and then empty out what Jesus means mm-hmm. and put in something totally different, like a nice right. guy who was a hippie, who was <laughs> yeah. a who basically would have right. been for like any policy that would stop climate change. Yeah, you like right, you know yeah. what I mean. And, and I'm not mm-hmm. saying that Jesus like wasn't what some people would call a hippie. Like, like, sure. you know, you find the right jerk and they'll be like, oh, that guy's a hippie. Right. Yeah, like, Fine. But yeah. like Jesus actually revealed himself pretty well. Yeah. And he shows himself through the gospels and through the, the theological mm-hmm. meaning of his life as, um, as recorded in the epistles, mm-hmm. very clearly what he actually is. And if mm-hmm. you quote, believe in Jesus, you believe in that Jesus or so, you don't believe in Jesus. Yeah. So I've been, I, so I moved to Minneapolis like nine, 10 months ago and I'm trying, I was trying to find a church. And it felt like there was this this like stigma in Minneapolis on the Bible, like specifically. It was like we don't want to put any like 
parameters around Jesus and we don't want to put any parameters around his teachings like Jesus he is lo- like you know he is love he is joy he is peace you know, like mm-hmm. okay well what does that mean well, like no we're not going to yeah. put parameters around it so well it, it creates unity through ambiguity which exactly, ultimately which bites is, you in the butt which is which is yeah i right. feel like you know satan would love ambiguity it's like yeah just make up whatever you want cuz you're going to make up the wrong thing cuz you're a sinner so go ahead mm-hmm. and so that that's what's very frustrating is is that th- there seems to be some sort of stigma i don't think it's just in minneapolis i think it's all over the place that theology is bad because you're putting you're just making you're making like solidified statements about jesus and his character and who he is based off of the bible and what we and how we read it Mm -hmm. and that's for some like because of probably postmodern philosophy and all well, the it's, other it's partly issues. just contextualization i mean minneapolis has a lot of super liberal people yeah, yeah. and they think they're too sophisticated for mm-hmm. the bible and yet these yeah. churches are still trying to reach them right and well, so it's probably what madison would be like more so like i think like mm-hmm. you t- preaching in madison is it's probably a a good thing because it's pr- probably i don't know it's, it's a good thing because there's you have some sort you're definitely far more intelligent than the average person. And you got these people at the universities who are like, I'm so smart. And then they come to high point and probably feel a little less smart than they would because you're kind of attacking a lot of what they are being taught at the, at the schools, like philosophically or psychologically. I do try to deconstruct some of that stuff when it's, I mean, the the apostle Paul said like, like we destroy every thought that sets itself up against Christ. Yeah. But that gets back to the whole question that you're talking about is like the apostle Paul believed that, Every thought that set itself up against the implications of what kook Jesus is mm-hmm. had to be destroyed. Yeah. Like he, to him, that was essential. Right. So like mm-hmm. in, in his view, like certain versions of secularism, not believing those is essential. Right. Or, oh, yeah. and so on. So um, one, one of the areas where I think is might be helpful for some listeners who mm-hmm. feel like you do is, is to use first Corinthians 15 mm-hmm. um, towards the end of first Corinthians, you know, Paul's trying to build unity in this church. That's one of the things he's focused on. Mm-hmm. He talks a lot about how they should deal with all kinds of problems towards unity. But in chapter 15, he says this for, I delivered this verse three, I delivered to you as a first importance. Oh, what I also received yeah. that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures that he appeared to Cephas in the 12. Then he appeared to me in 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, to all the apostles, and last of all, to one as untimely born, also to me. For I am the least of the apostles. And he goes on a little bit more, and he says a few other things. So, so he says, Jesus died for our sins. He right. rose for our justification, right? And then he appeared to people in his resurrected state. Well, that, that and he did all of this, he says twice, according to the scriptures. So Paul's also saying there's this wider context of what God said he was going to do. Yeah. In the scriptures, that is here, the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And in accordance with all of that, those promises in the Old Testament, Jesus died and rose from the dead. Mm-hmm. And so that in that context, he says that is of first importance. And I think that that would be Paul's language for what we we're calling essential today. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that 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 verse kind of solidifies what or Galatians one, like why Paul's message is the well, he talks about Galatians one about a distorted gospel, right. And let anybody who preaches a distorted gospel, be yeah. And so that's one reason to say to what he's, that. It would be wrong to say the stuff he says in First Corinthians 15 is the only things that are of first importance and essential. Yeah. This is just one quick version of the essential gospel. But like, yeah. for example, in the Galatians, what's happening there is something completely different where yeah. people are adding human actions and works as necessary to receiving salvation, i.e. circumcision. So if Paul's saying this, like if, and, and if Paul's saying what, you know, that we need to, we need to like destroy anything that is 
how exactly? In Second Corinthians, yeah. Yeah. They, then it, it, he talks about dis- demolishing strongholds. Is strong, right? So like, there's some ideas that stand up against Christ. They're like castles, yes. keeping you from traveling in Christ's yes. way, and, and they're like going to shoot arrows from you. Like you have to, that has to be torn down. Yeah. So if that's what if Paul says that, then like, and the apostle, and this kind of gets into like, well, then <laughs> I think we should do a whole podcast on. Then, like the validity of scripture, because well, Paul's a person and he wrote it, but he was he was like divinely influenced into writing these things, and so and all scripture is God breathed. If that's what Paul says and that's what the Bible says, then shouldn't like shouldn't we be then just destroying a lot of things? Like, shouldn't we like personally and together as a church like trying to take down certain philosophies and and psychological ideas and scientific yeah, like kind it, of yeah so let me read the verses this is second corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5 he says mm-hmm. the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world so we're not talking about shooting people or yeah. blowing stuff up okay it's yeah. just make because people hear stuff they want right. to hear sometimes yeah um on the contrary he says so like the opposite mm-hmm. of that they have divine power to demolish strongholds that is the truth of the gospel has this divine power to demolish strongholds. And then verse five, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Sure. So, the, so the idea here is, is, so here's the thing. If, if you're out there and you claim to be a Christian, that's supposed to be your attitude. Not what's the minimum I can believe. Yeah. Your attitude is what in my life sets it up, set right. itself up as a pretension against the beauty and glory of God and his gospel. Yeah. And how do I, at least in my own mind, tear it down and make right. it obedient to Christ. And yeah. I, I'm just going to tell you m- most of the stuff you want to believe about sexuality mm-hmm. that like you can do what you want, mm-hmm. that you can affirm whatever people want you to affirm, all that kind of stuff. Those are all pretensions that mm-hmm. set themselves up against the glory of Christ and they're, they're strongholds that have to be torn down. And you could acquiesced to that argument could be made about basically, well, it's, Specifically, sexuality is important, but yeah, basically, that's anything, true doctrinally like, as well. And yeah. like doctrines that may that minimize sin, for example, mm-hmm. are a good example of that. Um, well, the, okay, so then, but let, let me give you a, real, a subtle example. Yeah. Okay, so right now, it's very popular to believe that shame is it's, completely unproductive psychologically. Yeah. Brene Brown is the, kind of the most famous person talking about this, and the reason why, and I, I think Brown is a relatively careful scholar, and I like her for the most part, but. She acts as though there's only one kind of shame mm-hmm. and it's basically shame that is self-hatred and therefore the treatment for it is like self-compassion, yeah. which is not repentance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in the Bible, um, God intentionally shames people mm-hmm. in numerous situations, right? So mm-hmm. is God bad? Is he doing something that is holistically, psychologically unproductive? Mm-hmm. Right. See that in some ways, Brene Brown has like given this like truth about shame to the world that is incredibly helpful and therapeutic. We live mm-hmm. in, in a, a moment where our, our ungodly culture creates an enormous amount of self-hatred through abandonment and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And it's epidemic. And then Brene Brown comes in and says something that's true. Shame reads self-hatred is everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's destroying your life. Mm-hmm. You need to have compassion and vulnerability, which but it's is like true. Just swung too, too far right. to the problem that is, is that there's, at least three kinds of shame. Yeah. And um, one is the shame that you feel when God, when you are morally contradicted for what is actually lewd. Like you don't have moral gravity. You're doing whatever the heck you want. And somebody says, yeah. that's evil. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is not you not having empathy for yourself. It's the fact that you behave as though you have empathy for no one around you. Mm-hmm. And when you're behaving lewdly, that is you fail to have empathy for anybody around you and you act immorally. You're supposed, shame is the medicine. Mm-hmm. Shame is literally the cure for that kind of behavior to give you moral gravity and humility and faith and trust. And right. And so what happens is, yeah. That's that that confusion and the ambiguity of that creates a stronghold in mm-hmm. the minds of modern young people, right? Mm-hmm. And they go like, "Wait a second, 
I'm reading Ezekiel and God's all about shame in Ezekiel, but, mm-hmm. but Brene Brown says shame is bad. Right. right? And so, so the I'm going to read something. So either you, so yeah. you have a couple options, either mm-hmm. a, you just believe Brene Brown because she's a scientist. She believes in social science and right. you're a modern enlightened person and mm-hmm. you supervise yourself and you're going to make your own decision. And you're going to follow her. Right. Or you say Brene yeah. Brown is of the devil yeah. and like, you know, Ezekiel's right. And we should use shame more in the church mm-hmm. or you go, okay, Brene Brown has made the image of God. Right. And God is going to give her natural revelation and light when she seeks any kind of truth. Hmm. And she has found a truth. Now, what God says in Ezekiel is also true. Hmm. Maybe in some way they're both true. Maybe I need to grow up and have a more complex understanding of my soul as related to self, um, like self-confrontation. Hmm. When my inner self confronts myself morally, mm-hmm. what's happening? Hmm. Is it self-hatred or is it? God's good shame for my cure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how do I tell the difference? Yeah. And how does that work? And, mm-hmm. and w- it, which is going to include vulnerability with other people, which Brene, which Christians just call fellowship. Yeah. Right. And, and so, and so you can put that all together. If right. you say, okay, listen, I'm going to take these thoughts and they're going to become obedient to Christ. Yeah. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to pray. I'm going to talk with other Christians. I'm going to find a way to mm-hmm. work this all out. Mm-hmm. And when you do, you grow, you mature, you grow in wisdom, mm-hmm. but only when you approach these with what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord, knowing mm-hmm. that God is right. And trying to sort it out, which is literally the opposite in some ways of enlightenment, because you're starting with the presumption that God is probably right and you're probably wrong. Right. But that actually leads you to enlightenment because you consider things you never would have considered in your presumptive pride right. had you thought you were in charge of everything and you knew enough to mm-hmm. make all these decisions. Well, you, you so I this is just leads right into the next question perfectly. You bring up the fear of God, and there's a verse in Philippians that says, uh, "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling." Right. And people. You know, I remember listening, which to is a, kind of the opposite of you should have you should have total assurance of your faith the minute you believe all in Jesus. the time. Yeah, it's exactly. literally the opposite. It's, yeah, and so that freaks people. Out. I remember listening to Francis Chan sermon, and he was reading. I think he was reading that, and he was like, he was like, "Well, does fear mean fear?" And he was trying to like play the like devil's advocate. And he was like, "Guys, fear means fear," and it's like, <laughs> like that's what this means. And so it's, but it's, but it's, again, it's like people my age and people who are younger and a lot of the liberal like you don't. You, it's like when we talk about like, fear, the same issue with shame. They think fear is holistically bad. It's, it's all one bad. thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, the was the beginning of wisdom and the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom mm-hmm. and knowledge. And right. And so the, there seems to be some good type of fear. And then also, like, oh, yeah, you show me a person without fear. I'll show you somebody who is ruining their life or the lives of others. Right. And oh, yeah. so if you don't fear something. Well, you're probably just lying to yourself because you, you do. If fear you don't fear something, you're already dead because you don't yeah. fear gravity. Like, yeah. it's like yeah. right. fear, fear is a recognition that you're made out of right. soft pink flesh in yeah. a world that will kill you. Right. Yeah. And that's a true fact. And so how do you how, how do you then make the distinction between like healthy, good fear, the fear mm-hmm. of God, and then also like crazy? Because, OK, I'm just going to irrational fear, irrational Phobia, fear. Right. Like, let's talk about let's just I'll bring this up because there's this is just really kind of pissed me off in this last two years is that the the covid thing happened and whatever you think about covid is whatever you think about covid but the like irrational just christians are just like i will lock myself in my house forever if that's what it means to save my life because my life is far more important than anybody else's life and it kind of it was like paul was going into cities like and and they're beating the crap out of him and and they killed all the apostles and then we get this little virus and I'm not going to, okay, I won't belittle, sorry, it's a virus, but 
Yeah. You get this for virus. For some people, it's quite deadly. And for, and for yeah. the majority of people, it's really it's statistically really not, right? not. And mm -hmm. so you got a lot of these young people who are like, well, I'm not, I'm just going to do what everybody tells like me. Like healthy people in their 20s. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was the strangest thing about it. Like, oh. like, like there, are two, there are two strange things. One is having 74 year olds with COPD coming to church and being like, I'm not going to be afraid of this virus. Right. Okay. That's weird. Yeah. I'm like, okay, listen, you probably should yeah. consider being more careful. Right. <laughs> but then, yeah, we, but we, you gotta we admire, got, yeah. we talked to 20 somethings that had oh. just been married and they were like, like newlywed couples that weren't having sex yeah. because they didn't want to spread the virus. And I'm just like, you, you realize that like for you, yeah. not for, for a lot of people, but for you, this is like, it's like statistically irrelevant. Well, like, and as a Christian, I felt like that was a, per a perfect opportunity for us to be like, look, look at something that's taken a hold of our culture. And that has, that has exposed the irrational fears in like 70% of the people in the, in, in the world. Mm -hmm. And then being as a Christian, being like, hey, we have some sort of cure to that type of fear, which is Jesus, who allows us to not fear death. And yeah. so it felt like Christians just completely were like, yeah, well, I'm not sharing the gospel. I got to be locked inside. I can't do that. I'm not yeah. going to tell people about. Yeah, so I there's think that be that's a, a portion. I, so, I, I, you know, whenever we disagree with people, part of what lets us tear down strongholds is to start with having a fairly charitable interpretation of their view mm -hmm. so that we can consider all sides. Right. And I think there I think there are some people that based on their behavior, I would say believed exactly that uh, there were a lot of Christians who said, who were thinking, cause part of this is a question of Christian witness. And mm -hmm. some Christians said the way we should have Christian witness in COVID is we should show that we're not afraid of it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then there were other people who said the way we should show our Christian witness is by, by sacrificing our like freedoms and things like that. So that people realize we care about them. People know we care about them. And I think but both know, of those can go overboard. Well, I know some people who are like, well, I'm not going to take any precautions. There was consistency. Here's what my argument was. There's consistency in one of them. It's like the other one was not consistent through and through throughout COVID that, that we should stay inside and that we should be, do the loving thing of not going mm -hmm. out and potentially harming people. It was like when it infringed on their like philosophical beliefs, when it came to, racial injustice they were right. out on the streets rioting and so that was the that was yeah. the inconsistent I, this isn't a political i'm not sure if that's people. all i'm not sure if that's all the, but but yeah there, there was some portion that seemed to be inconsistent relative to but like that gets back to the issue of i, I think the way it was inconsistent is in one sense what before the before the protests it was like you're like well wait what's the trade-off here like in order for us to be yeah. cooped up in our houses where the trade-off is massive mm -hmm. and people were like well it's not that bad a trade-off mm-hmm when I would argue that it was a huge trade off. And then when race got involved, it was like, well, and then people got the streets yeah. and you're like, they're, you're like, well now it's a trade off. And they're like, oh yeah, it's a trade off because race is more important. Yeah. Then you made this than the other. And so what it showed was, is that they're they're what they believed anthropologically about human beings as a whole relative to isolation, that that didn't value very highly, mm -hmm. but what they consider racial justice, they valued very highly. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that that, see what this comes down to is that I personally believe that was a miscalculation. I think that, um, I actually think that the race protests, mm -hmm. I don't think that those were a big deal. I, I mean, the rioting was a big deal, but the mass of people coming together to protest, mm -hmm. I don't consider that a big deal. And the reason I don't is because I thought the people should be going out and seeing each other the whole time. Anyways. Yeah. yeah. So for, for me, I was like, yeah, because because it's yeah. it's a flu. It's going to mm -hmm. spread. Right. It, but, yeah. the, but, yeah. but, but, but the problem is, is that what they didn't value was the enormous human costs of isolation. And that was that was a deal where like that what they, what they did the problem was is that they had fallen into the popularity trap well you mean the racial problems were popular yes there are some right. racial problems that are true mm -hmm. 
they're also very popular and very powerful right, right. now. The, the psychological and personal suffering of many millions of people in isolation mm -hmm. because loneliness is much more of an epidemic in America than even racism. Mm -hmm. That we didn't care about that. People mm -hmm. just did not care mm -hmm. about that. They cared about a certain percentage of people that might die, right? And I think that that was an enormous miscalculation. And I think that that was a Christian misunderstanding. I think people's failure to have a Christian anthropology to understand mm -hmm. what human beings are really are and what they really need from each other mm -hmm. and why they really need to keep meeting together, why that's important, was a failure in understanding how human beings function and flourish. And, and because they had a unchristian view of what human being is, right. and it had been secularized in a way that is co consistent with a certain kind of progressivism, mm -hmm. they didn't understand Christian truth. I think it's deeper than just they were afraid. I think they had a bad anthropology because they didn't understand the stronghold that had come into their mind yeah. about what a human being is. Yeah. So I think it's more subtle than when conservative Christians just say, they just were hypocrites. Well, I think it's more subtle than that. I think that they had a. I think that they had a unchristian anthropology. Well, and I, I don't, I don't disagree with that. But don't you think that the fault, and this is in the Christian, this is this is people who are claiming to be Christians is what I'm talking about. I'm not mm -hmm. talking about people who aren't Christians because right. do whatever you want. Um, I'm saying that what wouldn't it be? Isn't that a direct result of some sort of false gospel, a, a misunderstanding of who you are? As a human being. Yeah. Like, but it's, Okay. So, so here's the argument I want to make though. And this gets back to the question of what's essential. Yeah. Right. Is, is the goal for any person cannot be the essentials. It has to be total obedience to Christ in the mind of Christ. Yeah. Because think about this. Let's say you're a Christian and you're just trying to make it through and you want to, you don't want to be thrown out of polite society. You're at the university. Right. And so what you're going to do is in your Christian faith, you're going to take in everything you can that you're hearing from secularity godless secularity mm -hmm. and you're going to accommodate as much as you possibly can. You're going to say yes to as much as you can. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you get a non-Christian understanding of what a human being is, mm -hmm. if you don't know enough about the mind of Christ to know that that's wrong, mm -hmm. you take it in mm -hmm. right now. That's one of your beliefs. Now you're prone to justify it in some way. Mm -hmm. So now when something contradicts that view of, of your anthropology, which is not Christian, it's actually secular and you don't even really understand why, because mm -hmm. you kind of absorbed it because you wanted to be accepted. Mm -hmm. Now yeah. you're motivated to accept other things mm -hmm. like, yeah. okay. Okay. So then racism is the biggest problem in humanity. Right. Okay. So death is the biggest loss anybody can have rather than dignity right. or honor. And so anything that can cause any loss of human life, we have to do everything we can to stop it. Right. Okay. Well, wait, what about the dispersed costs to everybody relative to the narrow costs of those who will die? Like what's the difference? Well, you, you, mean you the, can't the, do those kinds of calculations right, because you, of the decisions you've already made. Yeah. So you, when, when you don't make every thought obedient to Christ, one thought that's not obedient to mm -hmm. Christ can lead to another one and then another one and then another right. one to where you're doing something where you'll look at that and you'll go, well, that isn't that blatantly hypocritical. They don't think it's blatantly hypocritical because the hypocritical action is eight steps down the line mm -hmm. from their original non Christ centered thought. Right. And so they don't, they just see themselves as trying to be honorable and consistent. Well, and it felt like that was you. You had mentioned in the last six months that at some point that there was like a like a countless amount of educational hours that were taken away for for children mm -hmm. through COVID. That probably is going to be far more detrimental than anybody can even. Yeah, the loss comprehend. of the loss of human life. So, like, you can. So, the, the way statisticians do this in economics is you can track human life mm 
mm-hmm. by education. If you get to, if you get an extra year of education, every year of education that you get will, amounts to about two years on your life expectancy, right? Mm-hmm. So if over a year and a half of COVID, I'm not gonna live the average kid <laughs> yeah. lost about a year of education, mm-hmm. right? For some kids, it's even more than that. Yeah. And the more black and brown you are, the more education you lost because you usually you didn't have two parents right. at the home. Right. The, the likelihood your dad was working on his laptop in the next room mm-hmm. while you were on school is much higher if you're a white kid than if you're a black kid, mm-hmm. right? The, the yeah. likelihood is your mom actually had to work at the restaurant and she was gone. Right. And she couldn't look over your shoulder, right? Yeah. So black and brown kids are the kids that we were the most concerned about relative to the achievement gap, mm-hmm. fell further behind, right? Mm-hmm. In losing a year of Which schooling. Which is a, a counter to right. the racial, right? yeah. The reason the black community was in a, a really terrible catch-22 because, because they have more um, pre-existing conditions, mm-hmm. especially their older people were much more susceptible to COVID. Mm-hmm. They were also much more likely to be living in homes with younger people. Mm-hmm. So you've got grandma in the house with the kid who's going to go to school. Yeah. So that's a terrible choice. The kid goes to school, gets COVID, brings it home. Grandma can die, which mm-hmm. is real. That really did happen yeah, in some that, households, yeah. but that means that kid doesn't go to school and he falls further behind. Right. And I asked some black leaders, I'm like, don't you see this is a terrible choice? And they're like, yes, mm-hmm. but we're going to go with the health one because we don't want people to die. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, but see what, what happens statistically is, is that the vast majority of school children lost somewhere between a year and so, so school, I think it was like 280 days on average. Yeah. And what that produced is two years less of health expectancy. You multiply that by the number of kids and that's like 14 million years of life lost. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the average life expectancy of the person who died from COVID, a lot of people were dying at like 82 and their life expectancy was like 78. Mm-hmm. So their life expectancy, so like maybe they lost two years, Right. So what ends up happening is when you add up all the life lost from COVID where people died earlier than they would have otherwise. Mm -hmm. And what's the actual gap there? You relate that to all the dispersed years Mm -hmm. lost by that loss of just the loss of education, not anything else like suicides from loneliness or or drug abuse or any of that. Yeah. The difference is like 10 million years of human life. Yeah. So the, the analytical cost when you only bring in education loss for children, that's the only factor you bring in. It's like a factor of 10 mm-hmm. more loss from all of the shutdowns that we mm-hmm. did than was actually lost by the people who actually died from COVID. Right. Right. Yeah. And so hmm. um, to me, that's insane. Yeah. And the reason we didn't have a more open policy was because people weren't willing to face those facts. Well, I feel like that's also a catch 22 in some ways too, because do you really want to send your kids back to the public schools? I mean, I'm, I, I mean, I thought that there was some positive things that came out of, like a lot more homeschool, like parents who are just like hearing what the teachers were teaching their children and t- pulling them out of the public schools. Cause I don't think that like, I, I understand like the, yes, adding, adding like life on. Like yeah. And the reason this relates, year of, the reason this relates to the topic of this podcast yeah. about essentials and non-essentials is that if you believe that you only need to believe the essentials and the non-essentials aren't important, yeah, that they're not really that consequential then you're not going to insist on your children having an integrated education. Like how does math relate to Jesus? How does social studies right. relate to Jesus? Yeah. These are separated right. from God, but they're right. not because the order. They're not because all these, all these areas of human knowledge that are not integrated or made obedient to Christ all go into your soul and mind and, and they affect the way you see the world profoundly. Right. You cannot keep that from affecting the way you believe about everything, mm-hmm. including close to essentials and essentials themselves ultimately. Right. And so if you if you're not tearing down strongholds in the areas of quote non essentials mm-hmm. or disputable matters, what ends up happening is 
all that land you actually are straightforwardly giving over to the enemy encroaches and encroaches and encroaches. And essentially, mm -hmm. after a while, psychologically speaking, mm -hmm. the essentials are under siege. You mm -hmm. can't believe them anymore mm -hmm. because what happens is human beings believe things on the basis of what sociologists call plausibility structures. Mm -hmm. They're just some things we find plausible, some things we don't. Mm -hmm. That's why some people responded to COVID really conservatively and some people really openly. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't based on science. Mm -hmm. Right, like people's views didn't correlate to how much science they knew. It yeah. correlated to what politics they had. That is who they trusted. Yeah. Why did they trust some people and not others? Why did some people trust Fox News and others at MSNBC? Because when they listen to those people talk, they find what they say plausible. Mm -hmm. But that's based on what's already in their minds, what's already in the strongholds of their knowledge. Do you right? think it has more to do with plausibility or temperance? I've, temperament, I've, you mean? Te temperament. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, yeah, people of some temperaments are more likely to be liberal and some people are more likely to be conservative. Yeah. But it also has to do with like your beliefs. Like you can have a temperament that's very liberal, but you can believe that um, the dispersed costs of an action are going to be so high yeah. that it's not kind. Like if you took a liberal person, you say, listen, you realize that all these school kids are going to lose two years off their life. Mm -hmm. Like, do you really think that it's kind to save some 74 year olds to take two years of life from all these 14 year olds or seven year olds? Yeah. If they would have seen it that way, they, they, maybe they would have said, well, no, mm -hmm. but the, the point, the point is, is that, like if you if you are basically tutored by the by worldliness in all the non-essentials mm -hmm. you will give up the essentials it's a psychological right. reality because all the structures of your mind that decide what sounds what sounds right and what sounds wrong yeah. are all governed by all these other beliefs yeah and so it's not like if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead that will push out any other thought mm -hmm. all these other thoughts will encroach on well did Jesus rise from the dead and maybe resurrection is just superstition and maybe Jesus didn't say those things. Right. What about that? It's, like, it's like people don't want to talk about the slippery slope, but right. it is a slippery slope. There's doubt no will grow in like weeds. Yeah. And if you yeah. don't bring in the bulldozer and re-clear mm -hmm. the field, you're not going to have any hay to so, use a, a farming metaphor. And so because of that, you cannot live a life in which you're saying, mm -hmm. well, what's the big, I mean, these are non-essentials. No, the non-essentials matter. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So here's, here's the way I say it. It may be non-essential, but it's still consequential. Yeah. It may be non-essential, but it's still consequential. And Jesus wants you to come to him in every area that is consequential. Right. While still loving your neighbor in disputable matters. So so then how should a young... I, I always say young Christians, but I, I mean Christians all across the board. I'm just around young Christians a lot, so that's why I say that. But how should Christians then... Like going back to that question of how should we have a healthy fear and trembling and working out our salvation and also be really confident in what we believe in so that we don't look like a bunch of cowards. Cause I think right. like there's like that, that mix where like, I think me personally, me and you are probably on the outskirts of, of the like societal norms of people who just like, will say whatever we think extremely confidently. Like I'll say whatever I think extremely confidently, even if I'm like 30% sure that it's true. And so that's most people are like deathly afraid of doing certainly that. something you're maturing out of i hope yeah but, um yeah but i also think it's a way that i try to figure out what's going on if i can throw an idea into a group and i can say it confidently i feel like i can get people's true authentic reactions to it because a lot of people don't like to hear somebody come at you mm -hmm. like that and so yeah. if, if i put if there's a group of like five people and i say yeah in a non-public setting in a non-public setting that works a lot better as a podcaster you know, we want to say things in right. proportion to our certainty. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. So then the question is like, how can we have confidence? A lot of young Christians, I think that are like crippled yeah. in this, in this, like, ah, I'm, there's a lot of the young Christians that are crippled. They're either crippled and like, I don't know right. what I totally believe. about. So this. yeah, people are and not going to like, too confident. people are not going to like my answer to this because it's a, if it'll feel like a personal attack, but yeah. if you're listening to this and you are struggling with like, 
what's the big deal? Why do I have to be, why do I believe all this stuff so specifically? Um, here's the problem. What Jesus says that the, the, the real problem is, is that you want the world to love you. That's the problem is. Mm. Jesus says that the reason why it's so important to fear the Lord and to just have in your mind, my, the only thing I want is to please God. Mm-hmm. The only thing I want is to believe the truth mm-hmm. and to be pleasing to him and to do what's right mm-hmm. and to obey everything Jesus commanded. The reason why that's, that's so incredible to have that fear of the Lord is because if you don't, you will fear the world. Mm-hmm. You'll fear your, you'll feel the world's rejection. Mm-hmm. And if you fear, fear the world's rejection, um, your, your fears will take over your cognitive processes and you'll believe whatever the world wants you to believe. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. Yeah. And so that's why Jesus says, don't fear the one who can kill you. Yeah. That is the world, but fear the one who can kill you. Kill you and then and afterwards then throw your, yourself. you body and soul yeah. into hell. Yeah. Right. That if you properly fear the Lord and you realize that the only one who can kill you really kill you is God. Yeah. And the only one who can really give you life is God. Yeah. And the only one whose view is really matter is God. Then you'll start there yeah. and work out. And that is really the only cure for the fear of the world because we desperately want to be accepted. We're, we're social beings. We don't want to be ostracized and kicked out. Yeah. That is the cost of following Jesus. Right. And so um, the most important um, attribute for mental virtue is courage. Mm-hmm. You have to look the world in the face that's going to reject you and limit your future mm-hmm. and try to cancel you and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And you have to decide that you don't care mm-hmm. what they think. You care about them, mm-hmm. but you don't care what they think. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not trying to please them, and you don't right. you don't have to believe what they believe. And if you can sort that out, if you can accept the outcastness of Christian faith, then you can grow intellectually. Well, and I think that 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 kind of stems from what you think about human nature in from the beginning. It's like if I'm completely and totally a sinner and deserve to go to hell, then so is everybody else, and so they can't. This might I don't know, but this might like sound bad, but they people can't comprehend the truth until uh, they've been directly confronted with it and so the most like hate-filled thing that you can do is to not confront somebody with the truth even if they're not going to like you and i think that's probably the biggest i see that as one of the because there's so many like of these and i was going to ask you earlier but there's so many of these like let's go out and share the gospel and these, you know, and I'm not a fan of college age ministries. And I think this is something that they really fail at. And it's, it's like, you like ministry to college age students, but you think some of the college age ministries don't yeah. do a good job on certain things. I think I anything, like being con- confrontational about sin. Yeah. And I think anything outside the local church is generally not going to be super sustainable anyways. Mm-hmm. But like the, the, the idea that like, yeah, well you, they go out and they share, you know, their faith, they go out and pre, like they share the gospel with people mm-hmm. and they use booklets and stuff like mm-hmm. that to do that. And it's, and it's, and it may, it, may, it always made me feel weird. Cause it's like you have this little booklet that's, it's not the Bible, mm-hmm. but it's kind of your like writing of what the Bible, like you think it should say or how it should present the gospel to people. Yeah. And it usually leaves out sin conveniently because who wants to believe that pe- part of the yeah. gospel. And that seems to be essential. And if you believe that, part of the gospel about yourself you're going to believe about other people which will leave you to it, it, you can't be afraid in understanding that then right yeah I, I think that i think what you're getting at here is that sin is an essential part of the gospel yeah and that not just saying it but like really believing it is an essential operative part of the gospel that if you don't you don't functionally really believe in sin and this gets back to the question before about belief Mm-hmm. Because if you believe with the book of Romans, 
that we are truth suppressors, we human beings. Yeah. We're true. We we suppress the truth. You really don't have a chance to have the mind of Christ until after you believe that. Mm-hmm. So if you're a human being and you have not yet submitted to Christ and that you've accepted that you are at heart a truth suppressor, mm-hmm. which is hilarious because like all the neurological research that's happening right now that's like um that's being like hey you know you know we're not really rational beings we're like we're psychological beings and we want to justify ourselves like that that's all in the bible right that's like all of it like like jesus doesn't treat us like philosophical creatures he treats us like psychological creatures self-interested ones that want to justify ourselves exactly what all the like a lot of the current neurology is saying um and so you've got to you've got to say okay wait God is saying I'm a truth suppressor that that's mm-hmm. what I do. Yeah. It's very difficult to stop being a truth suppressor if you're still in denial about that. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Like the, yeah. The, the biblical saying let God be true and every man a liar. Yeah. Right? Until you accept God is true and you're a liar, hmm. you will believe Kant yeah. that you can be in charge of yourself intellectually yeah. completely because you've grown up. Right. Which is which is true and false. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've grown up. Human beings have learned a lot mm-hmm. compared to our ancestors. We are quote intellectually grown up. But we're just as wicked as our ancestors in our thoughts. If not more. Yeah. yeah. Well, because we're, maybe we have more hubris because yeah. we're disconnected from death more mm-hmm. now. Yeah, that's there's, that's partially true, I think. Mm-hmm. So I just, this just gets back to the issue of um, in non-essentials, unity and liberty is good when you're, when you're relating to your neighbor. Mm-hmm. But your pursuit, if you are a Christian, your pursuit is to be, is to have the mind of Christ, mm-hmm. to believe as Christ believes about everything, mm-hmm. and to work through that in whatever difficult manner is necessary so that every thought becomes obedient to Christ. That's your goal, not that you believe eight doctrines that are essential and then whatever you want and everything else. Right. Well, when you talked about belief, I thought of, uh, you've probably seen Jordan Peterson talking, when they ask him, do you believe in God? Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, what do you mean by believe? I don't know what you believe by believe and what you believe by God. Yeah. 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 And that's a good point. I, I think... really respect his answer and think he's wrong. Oh yeah. I, I agree. Cause I... on one level, his answer is great, which is what I believe is what I do. Yes. Right. And I don't act every second of the day. Like I believe in God. Right. And that's true for everybody. And in some ways that's a stinging indictment on all of us. Right. And I think a piece of believing in God is believing in grace which right. it seems to be the piece that he missed that he right. continuously like doesn't want to confront. And maybe yeah. he hasn't heard it. Well, what he doesn't entirety. understand is Jesus. He doesn't understand yeah. Jesus that, that, that Jesus is gracious yeah. and will count as faith yeah. in perfect faith. Right. So if, if Peterson says, I don't believe you, you, what you'd say is no, Jordan, you intermittently believe, right? Like you, yes. you have belief. It's just faulty belief. Yes. And God is gracious enough to accept yeah. your faulty belief as right. sufficiently truthful mm-hmm. that he accepts it and then he does the saving like, mm-hmm. right so yeah jordan doesn't yet understand the gospel entirely mm-hmm. but i th- i think it's based on something that is a, per- a desire to pursue authenticity mm-hmm. that i th- i think might lead him there i don't know yeah and that's what was encouraging to me to hear about that when i watched you know these videos of him doing that i'm like well he's taking this the idea of do I believe in God far more seriously than a lot of Christians that I know and probably more seriously than myself half the time. The mm-hmm. idea of like, this is such a, it's such a touchy thing because it's like this determines everything forever for every individual, right. no matter what. And that's why I think we, we probably should have done this podcast like two years ago. But I, so then can you just make a, like a clear, and it's probably not, you're probably not gonna, but what then do you, if, if a Christian says, Nick, what do I have to believe to be a Christian? Or if a young person said, what do I have to believe? Like, and what do you, th- like, what's essential for me? Like, how, how do I, how can I be assured and also continue to want to know and believe more? 
I, so I think that the Bible does say what are the central doctrines if you read it. So I, I think that, for example, if you read First John, mm. um, it's very straightforward. Like you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He was raised from the dead. You have to believe that He died for your sins. You, like, like it's it's very clear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also very clear that you have to love the church. Mm-hmm. That is the the actual brothers and sisters of the local church, mm-hmm. right? And that's an essential doctrine. A lot of young people aren't willing to believe, but it explicitly says that right in First mm-hmm. John that you love the brethren. And what that means is that you're part of the local church, the real people that are there. You love them. Hmm. That's an essential doctrine. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it's an essential doctrine, um, John is saying, is is that it's a it it is a check on your authenticity. Mm-hmm. It's not like cognitively you have to believe it, but if you don't do it, mm-hmm. you aren't a Christian in practicality. So what I, what I would tell most people is stop asking that question, hmm. because I, if I give you an answer. Here's the, it's like, it's like telling your, giving your kid a rule. Mm -hmm. They just argue with you. Yeah. And if I (laughs) tell you like 12, 15 doctrines that are essential, like if I, like I could just say the Apostles' Creed, Mm -hmm. Apostles' Creed is maybe as good as anything. Just use that. Then you'll just do that. Right. Then people will be like, okay, I don't have to believe anything else. Yeah. And that's bull because practically to make it to the end, you have to believe a lot more. And maybe consider. But what each person has to believe in order to persevere mm. is in some sense relative. Hmm. Like if you have a melancholy, skeptical temperament, you will have to work harder to take more thoughts captive to Christ yeah. because you have to push more out from your melancholy nature so that your faith is strengthened enough so that you'll make it to the end. There are some people that are credulous by nature. They just believe and, and that, they'll believe yeah. the gospel and they don't, they practically can survive with fewer doctrines believed because they trust. Yeah. And I think like specifically it's, it's rel- it's not relative to you. It's relative to God's right. Ju- like he judges that. And I think you're like, that's just one way of, of measuring that. There's also like the, yeah, like, I think you can believe almost nothing and be saved depending on the great, it, like where you, you God, are. Jesus died for your sins. The and, India and, guy that right. you talked about, like right. how, how can they know more? But it's it, who, to whom much is given much is, uh, yeah. So the issue is not so much how much you know, but it's what you reject. Yeah. Like if, yeah. if you're presented with the truth of the gospel and you reject it, right. You're now a lot more susceptible, of susceptible and accountable, accountable. Yeah. Right. So yeah. if I, if, if I say to you, okay, like, like you got saved and you don't know nothing. I'm like, okay, do you believe in salvation by faith alone with the addition of nothing? Right. Like I, I, I give you like the Galatian test and you're like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't freaking know. You know, I'd be like, yeah. okay, but you believe in Jesus. Yes. He died for my sins. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. But if I say, okay, this is true. And I read Galatians to you and you're like, I don't believe that. Right. Well, Galatians literally says you're anathema. That is damned. Yeah. Right. So in some ways it's not so much what you, that's one of the reasons why heresy isn't false belief. It's false teaching. Mm-hmm. We all believe all kinds of false things to the extent to which you, you assert them. You're like, no, this is right. Mm-hmm. You become increasingly accountable. Mm-hmm. when that level of accountability is such that God's judgment would be damnation is in the mind of God. You don't have it. What if that teaching is the te- the, 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 this is confusing a little bit. So I'm going to try to, what if that teaching is like specifically ambiguity? Like what if that teaching, like, I think that's uh, cowardice. It's yeah. not heresy though. I like it. it like, I, I like if you make a non-ambiguous doctrine ambiguous, you're harming yourself and others. It's consequential. But it's not here. You wouldn't consider. I would consider that here. It depends on the doctrine. Well, it's no doctrine because it's ambiguous. You know, there's no. Well, no. I, no so, there. so I do think like so. It depends. Like if it is what Paul calls in Romans fourteen a disputable matter. So one okay. example of this would be like, wh- what kind of civic organization you think causes human flourishing 
in light of the gospel, Mm -hmm. whether it's like some mixture of freedom and socialism Mm -hmm. or socialism or total free markets or whatever. Like, what do you think actually in practice when it it, it interacts with human nature in the real world produces the greatest amount of human flourishing and justice? Now, I think that's a disputable matter. I Mm -hmm. have my beliefs that are very strong about (laughs) what the answer is, but I concede that is a disputable matter. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so if that's the issue and somebody's ambiguous about it, well, I'm not totally sure whether it's like heavier on a socialistic set of laws relative Mm -hmm. to, or a more freer market or whatever. Like Mm -hmm. I like, do you like Denmark over Sweden or do you like Sweden over whatever? Right. Like I I think that, Mm -hmm. so if you're ambiguous about that, I think that might be a virtue, Mm -hmm. but if you're ambiguous about the deity of Christ, I think that that's a vice. Yeah. Right. And you have to remember that what you do does impact your brother and sister in Christ. And mm-hmm. scripture says, don't cause your brother or sister to stumble. Mm-hmm. If being too doctrinaire causes your brother and sister to stumble, then you, that's blameworthy. Yeah. But if your ambiguity creates a lack of faith in your brother and sister because they accept your ambiguity, mm-hmm. that is also vicious. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's like walking the fine line. And I think yeah. it's important to, to, me, to bring up the, like may, maybe when asking the question of what is essential, you should look at what, like what, like what does God say is essential? Right. It's the wrong the question. The question he, is what's he, consequential and the answer yes. is everything. Well, and that God didn't specify in scripture what is essential. And he probably did that for a reason so that you wouldn't, like you said, only take certain parts of the body. If you, if that was the case, then we would like, you could just argue that the entire thing is essential and you should treat it as a, as essential. But I don't think that you could argue that none of it's essential. Right. So like, no, God, not, there is more essential than you want to think. Yes. There's always more. And that probably pushes people to it probably that's probably what it does it it pushes people to have fear and troubling when they approach the word of god and when they approach their faith in a healthy way that sanctifies them over time if they're actually saved because the desire to know what is essential um it 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 grows inside of you it feels like that grows inside of you as you grow in your own personal faith right so so i guess i would i would say this if you want to be a, if you're a Christian or if you want to be a Christian or if you're considering Christian faith, you need part of the mind of Christ is God's mind on this. How do you decide what to believe? Mm-hmm. Right. And um, like one of the passages on this, I, we already read a few but in Isaiah. I think it's in Isaiah 61 where, he, where God says, this is, you know, where will I make my home yeah. on the earth? And he says um, to the one who is humble and this is the one to whom I will look to the one who's humble in heart and who trembles at my word, mm-hmm. which is similar to Paul's quotation, the quotation of Paul in Philippians where he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah. The idea that like your job is not to figure out what's essential, not essential. Mm-hmm. What your job is, is to tremble at God's word mm-hmm. and to believe everything that it affirms. Mm-hmm. And for, and the, and the, the reason why that's so important is because your motivations against that will be extremely profound. Mm-hmm. Sexuality is the easiest one to point to because like, especially for young people, they want to have sex with other young people. Right. And so the, your mental motivations to rationalize, to do whatever you want, Mm -hmm. whether it's to affirm non-biblical sexuality Mm -hmm. so that you'll be accepted or whether it's to affirm non-biblical sexual practice for yourself so that you can do what you want is extremely Mm -hmm. powerful. Mm -hmm. Right. And only if you fear the Lord, you tremble at his word, you're trying to demolish every stronghold. Can you take this thing that's profoundly motivating to like, dissemble before God and lie to yourself and lie to God to believe whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Only when you realize you're a truth suppressor, that you tremble as word, right. that you fear the Lord, will you be like, no, I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Like the hard thing is the true thing here. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to trust the Lord. Mm-hmm. Not only will you believe what's correct, 
but you are forming your character to be ruthlessly honest, knowing that you're a truth suppressor and fearing the Lord. That is literally the opposite of the enlightenment ethos. Which is what we talked about in the political, the first political podcast where we like the main problem here is the inability to self-reflect, honestly self-reflect and mm -hmm. say, this is where I'm at and this is what I need help with. And that, that requires you to just realize that. you. Yeah. And that's why the doctrine of sin matters here is because most people want to self-reflect in such a way as that they believe they're expanding their enlightenment when they yeah. give themselves more of a break. Right. As so if they speak. came from enlightenment, like that, that that's mm -hmm. just the natural progression of human nature. Right. So the realization, the enlightenment realization then mm -hmm. becomes, Oh, everybody's too uptight. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it, basically right. you're, you're just John Jacques Rousseau. Right. Right. Yeah. Who abandoned his children and beat up his mistress. Right. It doesn't create good morality. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like everybody's too uptight. We should just like loosen everything up. Yeah. A more virtuous version of this would be Henry David Thoreau. Right. But like that may not be it at all. What yeah. may be the truth is, is that human beings are profoundly sinful truth suppressors when it comes to moral truths. But where it comes to truths that would do them some kind of good, where they could have some kind of achievement, like scientific truths, mm -hmm. they'll pursue the truth. Right. So they can, they'll pursue scientific truths because it helps them technologically makes their lives better. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the technologies of the moral truths of their life, they're prone to throw them off. Mm -hmm. Look at our culture. Yeah. Our, our culture is like the perfect description of that. Mm -hmm. anything scientifically that can get us more stuff or can make our lives easier or can cover over for our immoralities or can be like a more like um, vain self-expression mm -hmm. of ourselves just like things like social media. We love all that stuff. We'll pay anything for it. We'll right. do anything to discover it. Which is probably the argument against capitalism and a free market. It, that's why that's it's probably one not an essential doctrine. But, but it's but also, you know, like that desire to live, for example, got us a vaccine faster than any time in history right? right so that's all in some ways that could, you could say that's good mm -hmm. it's also bad because of how we use it not because of what it is mm -hmm. but then when it comes to our moral technologies they're all falling apart mm -hmm. like yeah. terribly right and so that's mm -hmm. exactly what you would predict if christianity was predicting what human beings would be like in the 21st century right right it's yeah. exactly what's happening yeah and if you can reckon with that then you want to be a dinosaur you want to be like outside the norm you want to be right. not like everybody else you realize that that is true authentic humanity in the mind of Christ. Well, and you can start to see patterns and you can start to see thing. Like, it's not like this is like a new thing, like human beings just completely abusing everything and just making it suck. Like you start to see these patterns and you'd be like, maybe you can beat something like Christians, like maybe you can beat something economically or maybe you can beat something politically. You can beat, beat that thing before it comes in five or 10 years it's because you know, because you can see these things play them. You can see human nature play itself out throughout thousands of years and you can say, well, I've seen this thing happen before. And the whole thing of like, you know, don't, you know, history repeats itself. If you don't know yeah. what it is, that's a terrible. Yeah, it is. It is a but, fact of the humanities that the more people embrace the ethos of the enlightenment, the less they think human beings are tragic figures. Yes. And the less you think human beings are tragic figures, I would argue the less connected to reality you are. Yeah. Right. And, but the more you reject the doctrine of sin, that we are inherently problematic and therefore mm -hmm. require the supervision of a self, revealing God, mm -hmm. then the more that's naturally going to happen. Mm -hmm. But the more you think that, the more you are a truth suppressor and you don't see it. And like, yeah. there, there are these things that follow from it. Right. So, yeah. So I guess more and more, I would just say as a individual believer, mm -hmm. rejecting the idea of saying, well, I just need to believe in these quote essentials. No, mm -hmm. you want to believe in the whole mind of Christ mm -hmm. to obey everything he commanded is what he says mm -hmm. and demolish every stronghold that holds a pretension up against the knowledge of Christ. Mm -hmm. When it comes to your brother in the faith, Trying to understand what really does fall under disputable matters is important. Mm -hmm. The pro and it's it's less than you think. Mm -hmm. 
the stuff that the Bible is clear upon are not disputable matters. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to ask one more question because I, I knew this one was going to go a little bit longer. So mm-hmm. Matthew 7, I'm going to just read it. It says, uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do my, uh, many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I wrote here that it seems that we need to practice the law to know God because those who didn't practice, those who practice lawlessness need to depart from God. So I make the assumption that if you practice the law, then you don't have to depart from God. And I know that that gets like, you you know, Christianity is not a law, like a a works-based religion. Sure. But um, if the law and many, many young people believe that the law was abolished through Christ and we know that it was actually just fulfilled, but that's, that's a doctor. That's a false I mean, that's a lot of things. People are like, oh, the law is yeah. abolished, so you don't need to follow that anymore. Yeah, um, that is relevant to this discussion, I think. So understanding the relationship of the law, that is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible and the 600 or so laws that are in that, and, right. and law as a reality in the nature natural of the law. world. Yeah, yeah so what some philosophers would call natural law, right, yeah. um, is relatively strong. So what, what natural law theorists would say is that there is a kind of law that exists in the world mm-hmm. and the the law in the bible expressed it within a certain cultural context mm-hmm. but what it taught about morality is still true even though some of the laws are fulfilled and some of them in being fulfilled are obsolete mm-hmm. and so um what the new testament calls the law of love mm-hmm. is that that which is in the true good of another is dictated upon you mm-hmm. and that that is the law mm-hmm. Right. And he calls that the law that through which the spirit gives life. Mm -hmm. So that which we really owe our neighbor is our moral duty. Mm -hmm. And that is, quote, the law. Does that make sense? And every time we make a rule, what we're trying to do is just give an example of that law, Mm -hmm. how we love God with our hearts, our mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves Mm -hmm. or to do as we, we would be done by, as Lewis puts it. So I think it's important to recognize that, like, the, the law that is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible were fulfilled. And in that, and those books as a right. set of statutes are obsolete, mm-hmm. but the, the quote, the law, big L, the natural law or the law of God mm-hmm. that is, that was in those flows through them into the present and yeah. it, it's, it's tra- trans historical nature. Mm-hmm. So like the, the law of nature and of God that is in don't murder is still valid. Yeah. Does that make sense? Right. And in that sense, because the law of love is the, is the law of the spirit for the Christian, if you were to sit down and to write out all the things that that dictates onto us, you would have way more than 600 laws. Mm-hmm. Right. So in one sense, the law has expanded, hmm. even though it's simplified, because God has moved from giving us rules to giving us the, a one fundamental principle. Mm-hmm. Right. So in, in that sense, like we are still under a law, the law of justice, the law of what is good. The law, the law of the good that is love yeah even though we're not under the literal law of the torah mm-hmm. though in some ways we quote are because there are some laws in the torah that are still literally true now yeah because love still dictates them like you love your the, neighbors yourself the ten commandments basically i mean none right. of those are none of those are void now right so whether if you, if you grow if you grow a garden whether or not you can't harvest anything within two feet of the side of your garden because the poor could come in and glean mm-hmm. like that's not true, mm-hmm. but that some me- some 
provision must be made from the for the poor from your productivity mm-hmm. for those who are unfortunately poor mm-hmm. um, is still valid mm-hmm. right and you can see that in the new testament like paul's like you have to remember the poor mm-hmm. like the poor are a priority mm-hmm. but how you do it can be different so is, is, a, is so could you say that the law is jesus's teachings and his commands is this why jesus said teach them to follow my commands. Yeah. The law of love includes at least everything that is commanded in the new Testament. Yeah. So in that sense, (laughs) the new Testament is like a new law, but what Jesus is constantly saying is this isn't it, right? Like I'm I'm, like, you can't do it morally. You have to do it spiritually. So like basically everything that's taught in the new Testament, that's quote the, the law of Jesus, like what Jesus explicitly teaches is him just giving negative examples of where we're screwing up the law of love. Mm-hmm. So he'll say, oh, you know this thing you do over here? Like, that's crazy. That's, yeah. He's like, he's okay. like, I want you to live by the law of love. Mm-hmm. This thing you do doesn't comport doesn't with that, work, yeah. right? In the New Testament with the epistles, same thing. When Paul says, hey, like, you can't go to a prostitute. Yeah. Right? Because, like, that doesn't comport with the law of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and right. strength because you're a temple of the Lord. Yeah. So you can't unite the temple of the Lord with the prostitute. That doesn't go. You're not go. loving the prostitute. Right. And you're obviously not loving your wife, right? And your wife. Yeah. And you're not loving the prostitute right. who you are encouraging to engage in a, like, exploitative economic relationship too, yeah. right? So like everybody's being harmed, right? Yeah. Paul argues. Mm-hmm. And so engaging in prostitution and using prostitutes is fundamentally against the law of love. Mm-hmm. So he's calling out a failure to believe, to follow the law mm-hmm. of love mm-hmm. in a particular case. So in the New Testament, you can take all those particular cases and you can say, mm-hmm. here's the New Testament's law. Mm-hmm. But that's not what the New Testament is doing. It's just correcting all the ways we fail mm-hmm. To follow the law of love in the life of the spirit. And you have to know what love is and define it. And I right. think that love. And the New Testament does it everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and in several different ways. But like, would you say that like the, if you had to encapsulate what love is into one thing, it would just be like those who are willing to lay down their life for their friends. So Jesus calls that the greatest love is right. sacri- like self-sacrificial love, like willing to sacrifice everything of mine for the greater good of somebody else. Um, not the greater good, not technically like, Okay. Like, I'm not going to give all my money to somebody else because I don't know what they're going to do with it. But the greater good of them, of their spiritual self and of their, and, and I, I don't know, like, like where did that, of their spiritual self, right? It would be of, of them well, spiritually. I mean, you're, you're just stewarding everything you have for the good. Yeah. So it might be giving money to somebody who is unfortunately poor. Yeah, that's one but of it, the ways. But it is more than that, right? Yeah, it's so more than that. It's, it's stewarding or governing your whole life. Everything that you have yeah. is from God, but is in your hands right. to use. And that you use it as in a way that like God would be pleased. Which was your argument earlier in the politics one was that you paying taxes isn't you loving people technically. Like, oh, I'm, I'm paying my like I'm paying my taxes or or like you being an advocate for capitalism isn't you loving people more because you're like, well, this this system allows people to get out of poverty really easy compared to other systems. Right. Like that. That's not an you're not advocating for love because you, you, you could. Be, I think what doing, you're doing what's it good of, and true yes. is always loving. And so ad, if if in fact capitalism raises more people, out of poverty, yes. which I think it does. Yeah. Then advocating for it is, is one good. way to love others. But in terms of the concentric circles of how you operate yes, in your life, it's right. kind of out there ways. Yeah. And, doing and so it, that does not substitute for loving the person who literally lives right, next to you right next or to in you. your own household. Yes. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So if you're like a jerk to your wife, but you're like, yeah, you're like yeah, pro-capitalism, yeah. like you're not, a, that doesn't make you like yeah, in right. line with the law of love. Right. Right. Exactly. You're in line with the law of love in that one principle. Right. But then, then not in everything else. Yeah. And you're yeah. probably out of line on the thing that's like far more important than right. that relative to you. Yeah. A number of people have made the argument that if you can't figure out how to love your neighbor, your view on international race relations is probably <laughs> screwed up. <laughs> yeah. 
right? Yeah. It's kind of like it's if you don't like make I'm, your bed, then you're not going to figure out how to. That's Jordan Peterson. Yeah, it's I classic guess. Jordan Peterson, right? Yeah, yeah. But it, but it was true before him too. Like so, for example, one of the things that I tell preachers is like, if, as your church gets bigger, counseling people and doing evangelism with individual human beings and like talking to individual humans about the truth mm-hmm. is not something you cut out of your schedule. You cut out other things from your schedule as your church gets bigger, because mm-hmm. otherwise your preaching will suck. Yeah. Like if you don't continually talk lose, with real humans, you lose re- you lose right. connection. You can't. You're, and that happens right. all the time. You got pastors who are just preaching stuff, and you're like, this doesn't. Right. Or me people at in all. Washington making laws who don't spend time who with don't the spend poor time when with they're humans. at home. Yeah. Yeah. And so they they don't re- they're so that like ideologically they're like thinking about poverty, and that's not a great way to think about right. it. most things in human life, well, like race, poverty, but also things like economics and. It produces this thing because I I was we just did a podcast with Lacey Johnson who. I listened to some politics. Of that last night. Yeah, and he's great. And he he talked about how like your um like he thinks about it in terms of when it comes to poverty, would I do this, would I do this thing to solve poverty? Would I do that with a close family member? So mm-hmm. if I have an alcoholic who's a family member, would I shovel them more money because that could help them because they're they're mm-hmm. struggling? No, you wouldn't do that because they're gonna go buy alcohol with that money. Mm-hmm. And so people who are disconnected from the actual people whether they're homeless people on the streets, like why are they homeless? A lot of them are homeless because they're addicted to drugs. Giving them money isn't going to actually help the problem. Yeah, It's, I don't know. Yeah. There's a, a lot of other things. There's it, a black author named Albert Murray in the 20th century. He's kind of like a towering social figure. Yeah. Um, he's kind of like, he wrote through like maybe the, up through the Clinton years. Mm-hmm. And he, one of the things he really hated was social science and applying that to race and the poor. Mm-hmm. And he's, he said, and he's similar to John McCorther now where McCorther's like a, 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 he's a linguist and he's like a, a, a music aficionado. Albert Murray was a jazz aficionado and that okay. he did a lot of like humanity stuff. And because of that, he was like the humanities are the least scientific of the, he doesn't say it this way, but this is how I would say it. <clears throat> the humanities are the least scientific of the disciplines, but yet, but the most holistic. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, you can say true things about the human beings in the social sciences, mm-hmm. but, be, but the sciences, the more scientific they are, the less holistic, holistic they are yeah. and therefore the less human. Right. So things that the humanities have known for 5,000 years because it treats people as whole creatures, mm-hmm. the social scientists are explaining away with their like atomized science right. in trying to help the poor. And yeah. so they can say things like the black family is falling apart, mm-hmm. but they have no idea why or in what way or how yeah. it's adapting or anything like that right. because they don't see it as a human phenomenon in right. their neighborhood as a whole thing with right. humanity. They see points, mm-hmm. and he's like, and so he was a huge advocate to just call BS on all this social science that tells us how to do poverty things. He normally did that when Albert Murray said it. He was basically def- just defending black people. Mm-hmm. But what he was, what he was also saying was like, you get the wrong conclusion, you'll do the wrong policies. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly what a lot of conservatives believe now too. That right, like they, a lot of these, a lot of these like yeah. insights from social science that social workers say, right. so we must do X end up being false because of everything else that's true about those human this beings. This seems to be why the, the founding... And you would know that if you spent time with poor people. Yeah. and Because when I talk to social workers that spend all their time with poor people, they are not huge fans of national policies. Yeah. They're just well, like... That's my you're whole... like, wait, does this substance abuse yes. methodology right. use actually work? And they're like, right. no. No. Because that, that's probably why the founding fathers put more of an emphasis on the local, your city or your town, that small government like governing that small group of people rather than the federal government. Like, because if you're, if you're trying to govern 300 million people, you're going to miss out on at least a hundred million of them <laughs> in, in some of your policy. And if, if not way more than that. And so if you're trying to, to solve a, like w- whatever it is, like the, the racial inequality in, in the public mm-hmm. school system, it's like, 
Well, that's going to look different in Mississippi in a city in a city of Mississippi than it is in in a in a uptown or upstate Wisconsin some or something like that. And so because the, because of the cultures, because of the it's there's a billion different right. reasons. And so right, and, and a also federal I, fix I think doesn't fix anything. Right, and so I I think we should hasten to add that um, I have also seen. So what this kind of gets at is that if you don't pursue the mind of Christ, and if you don't pursue it in a personally localized way, like yourself. Yeah. You have to see the, the the truth, the truths of Christ that you're believing and operating in you, in your self-deception, yeah. in your sinfulness, and how mm-hmm. you can come into obedience in Christ and how that's a holistic process. Yeah. Only then can you like turn to your neighbor and try to help them become a disciple. Yeah. And only then can you talk about how you would build a church mm-hmm. and then a denominator or something like right. that, right? I think it's important to recognize that this is true. We, we've used mostly anti-liberal or progressive examples. This is also true. Like I know conservative people who, yes. when, you, yeah. when you talk about race— they just use conservative blips yeah. to just dismiss the question. Well, like, like it's the classic like, oh well, the segregation was like abolished in the sixties. A long like, time ra- ago, racism's gone, right. and it's like I grew up in a small town. Racism was not, not gone. gone. It's yeah. it's still here. It yeah, Nicole it. Kyle, one of our our worship director. She's I mean she's thirty, mm-hmm. and she grew up in Racine. And oh. she was like, she's half Mexican yeah. and she can pass as white, but she, her last name was Galvan. And so yeah. she was like, listen, you have no idea the bigotry that I endured oh, in yeah. high school as one of the only yeah. Mexican people. Right. So like in that, I mean, that affected her. Now I think for her, it ended up strengthening her. Like, right. I think she like overcame it and really mm-hmm. right. And I think that Christians can do that, yeah. but that doesn't take away the fact that yeah. racialized experiences, mm-hmm. even if you don't believe critical race theory explains everything. Right. Like the like the average conservative Christian hmm. will say, critical race theory bad, therefore all this crap about race bad, mm-hmm. therefore I don't have to think about it right. because it's all bunk. And, it's and that's the same right. dynamic of you're not taking every thought captive. If right. you believe you're a truth suppressor, right. if you believe you're naturally tribalist, every person is going to be like knee jerkedly yeah. racist in some right. way that's that flows out of yeah. the broken human heart. And yeah. if Christ doesn't tear down all the dividing walls of hostility— mm-hmm interpersonalized mm-hmm. hatreds and incumbencies and all these kinds of dynamics of people wanting the most for themselves mm-hmm. are going to, are going to flourish in your yeah. society, which is going to produce inequalities right. that are not based on merit. You can believe, and I believe that critical race theory is highly and completely ineffective. Totally. Like I don't see it being effective at all. I believe and it's a theory in crisis for sure. Yes. I think and, there's some really good insights that critical race scholars have brought up. But as a project, well, the, I think it's off course, yeah, and, dispro- it, and out of proportion. It's a, it's a lot like, uh, well, it's like the sixteen nineteen pro- project. You know what that is, right? The sixteen nineteen. Yeah, 19. yeah I think like, the sixteen nineteen project is, is one of the more, good examples of how bad it can be. Yeah, and so yeah. the critical race theory, like for me, I'm just like this is pro- this is definitely not the way to, to solve this issue. Mm-hmm. But you can't throw away the the positive in critical race theory is the desire to solve a problem that exists, which is racism. And, mm-hmm. and the question I think on, and on that, the, and that racism can be more than laws. Like it can, oh, like racism yeah. can be subtle and subtle racism can be highly consequential yeah. to people. Like and, that's that and yeah. for me, that's the, the fundamental kernel yeah. of insight in critical race theory, positively speaking. But it's holding the line mm-hmm. too, because it's like, then, then it's like, well, then we got to define these things somehow because it's like, right. and then anything that I say could be a microaggression and somebody just gets mad at me for everything that I say. And then it's like, I can't say anything anymore, which is probably right. that's and then you're telling you're telling minority yeah. people that they're not resilient, then they can't yeah. be resilient. They can't possibly. Right. There was, I watched this video. The, there was a video of a guy. Who I mean, that's what John McWhorter argued. He's African American linguistic yeah. scholar in his book Woke Racism. He's like, you're telling me that I can't be resilient, and yeah. I resent that. 
No, th- there was there's a video on, on YouTube and it was a Daily Wire, but this guy went around in New York City and he asked a bunch of like white liberals, like, why do you think that like a lot of black Americans are obese? Like like more so than any other race. Mm-hmm. And they were like, Well, it's gotta be racist. Like their answer was just it's racism. It's racism. It's racism. And then he went into like the kind of the, the the more black area of New York City and he asked black people, Why mm-hmm. why is this happening? And they're like, Because they don't eat healthy. <laughs> it was like, Because we're not eating healthy. Like yeah. we gotta eat healthier. Yeah. And it was just it was it was like shocking because it was like these it was it was this idea that like the like the black people are just helpless to to eating healthy and that to me seems far more racist or like more limiting to the to that to the to the black okay so to bring okay so to bring this back because i think people are gonna be like you guys just always want to talk about politics but in some (laughs) in some ways these kind of questions questions of like public policy and stuff are disputable matters but if you are trying to obey christ and then you move out towards disputable matters you're not saying oh what happens here doesn't matter no what you're saying is no in the disputable matters like how do we help people what public policies are good these are intensely interesting and and i'm not afraid of these questions because in these closer issues of essential doctrines i'm trying to obey christ but then because i have this faith in christ and i fear the lord i can't go to a question like race and say as a progressive, I can just be like every, like yeah. I have this simple answer. Right. Or as a conservative, I could just like blow off. Here's your, like yeah. what I have to do is I have to go with fear and trembling. That mm-hmm. is, I can't deny the truth here. Right. Who, whatever is right mm-hmm. about this, I fear the Lord. And what God wants from me is to seek the truth. And if the truth is to go against the popular progressive notion, right. I'm going to have to do that. And if, it's and if the truth the is to tell conservatives they're blowing off something that's important, mm-hmm. I have to do that. Right. And it's mm-hmm. probably yeah. both. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'm going to be unpopular and right. I'm going to be rejected right. by the world. And yeah. we're right back to Jesus saying, yeah. don't fear the one yeah. who can just kill you. Yeah, and I Fear the one who can kill you and throw and your body in hell. Yourself. Because if you fear God, you can look at... You could be rejected by conservatives mm-hmm. and progressives and do it because what you care about right. is the truth. Right. And what you care about is love. Right. What will truly help right. the person who is my other? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that can only yeah. happen when you are a hundred percent committed to the mind of yeah. Christ, to tearing down yeah. every stronghold, to not just believe what is essential, but right. to believe in everything that God reveals right. that is consequential. Yeah. And so then with fear and trembling, working right. out disputable matters with your brother, yes. not judging them, yes. but having vigorous debates with them. Yes. And I think that that, well, to, to what you just said, the reason why I like to bring up political stuff and people mm-hmm. might begin pissed off, whatever it is. Well, you're working like, in politics. Talk, well, I'm now. doing I mean, that. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's I have to heart. read about it all the time mm-hmm. anyways. But, and it's just what's on my mind. For me, but, I have to talk about it because politics is the new religion. Well, and in another sense, it's like, I am ta- not talking about, I don't want to talk about necessarily how the federal government and how all the Republicans and Democrats have gotten it wrong. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about it in the sense because I believe that Christians are the only ones who have a chance of getting it right because we have a f- foundation which is the truth of Jesus. And so yeah. if there's anybody but who should be talking about it. only if we are incredibly deep disciples. Yes. Otherwise... Our self-deception will make us worse than our philosophy. And then we'll have secular friends that the image of God in them and common grace will make them better than their philosophy. And they'll actually be more right than us. The only way Christians can be, quote, better intellectually than everybody else is Is if we accept everything Jesus has taught us. If we become full disciples and obey everything that he commanded and tear down every stronghold and make it obedient to Christ. And vigorously debate in disputable matters other right. believers that have tried to do that mm-hmm. so that we have really productive conversations about things that really right. matter to the world like climate change and race but also abortion and mm-hmm. freedom mm-hmm. and economics mm-hmm. and flourishing and equity right. and <laughs> and on and on and on and on, yeah. on forever yeah yeah i Absolutely. agree is there anything else i don't know what else i mean how long is that like an hour and a half two hours i think do you have anything else you want to say on the on the Top. I mean, we could talk about this for like 
Yeah, no, I mean, I would say, I mean, what I've said, I just would say again, like, it's not about what's essential. It's about what's consequential. Mm -hmm. Everything that God has spoken about, he, God doesn't waste his words. Like what he says, things, they're consequential. They matter. Mm -hmm. Everything God in everything in the scriptures, God has taken interest to Mm -hmm. tell you the -hmm. idea that a Christian would in a a world as difficult and Mm -hmm. curse weighted as this world Mm -hmm. that any Christian would be like, yeah, that, that that part's not not important Mm -hmm. of something. God spoke and showed himself in demonstrates that yeah. you are not a mm-hmm. Isaiah 61 Christian, mm-hmm. that you are humble of heart and you yeah. tremble at his word. Yeah. And if you will do that, it's not going to see people are afraid that if they do that, it's going to make them some kind of conservative legalistic, like overly religious um, person hating yeah. idiot who yeah. like is anti-science and hates gay people or something. Yeah. <laughs> and that is not what it will produce. Right. No. Yeah. But otherwise, if it's done correctly, if it, it could produced pro- that, yeah. it would have produced that in yeah. Jesus Christ. Yes. And it did not. Yeah. It right. didn't produce a Pharisee. It produced Jesus. Mm-hmm. And rightly understood, it produced his apostles. Right. Who were not like that. And so if we uh. rightly have the mind of Christ, we will be like Jesus and his apostles, not like Pharisees or some religious bigoted person that you know. Right. Right. It, it will not produce that. It will produce yeah. godly, holy love mm-hmm. and a profound love for the truth. Right. And that is pursuable, and you, and you cannot pursue it by being like, right. "Well, that's important, and that's not whatever, dude." Yeah, <laughs> that's that's not that's gonna so, produce. That's, like, well, I, that's what's like, kind of gotten me into just talking about this stuff more because I, a lot of my friends, like Spencer, is in here right now, and and like Spencer, you've like like people have pissed me off at my age. It's like like these. Sorry, he's not. He can't defend. He doesn't have a mic. But like the, like they piss me out because it's like, well, these issues aren't that big. Like I'm just gonna do my thing, and everybody else is gonna do their mm-hmm. thing. And young people need to realize that these, if we're not gonna tackle these what these issues now personally, then they're gonna play themselves out in society at a large level, and they're gonna really screw with people's livelihoods, and then ultimately could like ruin a lot of people's lives mm-hmm. if we're not dealing with these things internally dealing with our wounds and what's wrong with us right now in a d- discipleship and so i think mm-hmm. i think that like that's why it might feel like the last like five episodes have gone more like political but i don't right. think it's possible to talk about the bible like you said like politics is only like the governing of over 150 people right. so right you have to give to caesar what caesar's and what god was god's what what your other guest said last time i mean like there's there is no social policy that can overcome a lack of human regeneration. Yeah. There is no there's no government that can overcome the immorality of the population. Right. Right. But there are there are government policies that can incentivize a lack of character or incentivize character. Right. Mm-hmm. So government th- that's that's one of the reasons why I'm a hundred percent against government as a new religion and a hundred percent for government as a grace of God mm-hmm. in the areas where it can operate properly. And, and those questions are part of those disputable questions that we have to pursue, yeah. but that's gets, gets back to, here's what I want to leave people with. These are the two statements you need to remember. One is it's not about what's essential. It's about what's consequential. Mm-hmm. Everything Jesus says is consequential. Mm-hmm. The only way you can pursue that truth is if you do it in the fear of the Lord and you accept the rejection of the world. Mm-hmm. The thing that destroy that pushes people to that kind of logic, like, well, I don't want to accept all of it. I don't want to accept everything Jesus says. Mm-hmm. And so then they go to that distinction. Well, what's essential? What's not essential? The reason they're doing that is because they still want to be accepted by the world. Mm-hmm. They want the world to love them. They mm-hmm. want the world to accept them. They want the world to open doors for them. And, and it's because they love the world. It literally says in the Bible, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Yeah. You can't. You can love the world. You can love your neighbor. Right. You can be in there with them. You can be a friend to the world, yeah. but you cannot love the world. Yeah. 
Well, just like trying to love, just like yeah. it's like trying to love an alcoholic in your family. Yeah, you, can you can't love do them. what they want you to do. Right, but you can love them. Yes, and uh, we we are sent to the world. We are not of the world. Yeah, and so we'll, we'll end on that.